Hello, my name is Justin DeClue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And Fit as a fiddle and ready for love. You beat me to it. I was going to be like, today we're going to sing, we're going to dance. Toronto, Toronto, a hell of a town. <laughs> we're talking about... You, know, you just said that, and clearly you know the Simpsons parody I'd, more, I'd much more better than, than you know New York. New York, I it's a know. wonderful town. And nobody could see what I was doing, the guys and dolls, like <laughs> under the legs. Which is not a Stanley Donnan musical, but that's who we're talking about today, Stanley Donnan. And one of the reasons we're talking about him, of course, is the fact that he died, I think, two weeks ago. Uh, One of those directors that started very young in the business, which is why... I saw a lot of surprise that he was still alive because you associate him with like classic Hollywood and all uh, those actors, directors, screenwriters, producers are long gone. I I mean, he is one of the I think maybe the last Mm -hmm. of the great studio directors. Oh, yeah. Directors. Definitely not actors because fucking Kirk Douglas is hanging on. Kirk Douglas hanging on as is Olivia de Havilland and as is uh, (laughs) Mr. Clint Eastwood, who you'll recall began in Revenge of the Creature. (laughs) Don't forget, Olivia Havilland has a lot of lawsuits that still need to be settled before she could kick the bucket. Uh, She's great. But yeah, Stanley Donnan, so 94 years old, and it had also been 30 years since he made his last film, the uh, lamented Blame It on Rio, which I've yet to see. I picked it off the shelf at Bay Street Video and looked at it, and I'm like, no, I can't do it. And I'm like, commentary by no, and I stuffed it back on the shelf. Had I time to watch one more movie this week, it would have been that one. Mm -hmm. But he also made a movie you might have heard of called uh, On the Town. On the Town. No, Singing in the Rain. Singing in the Rain. Yeah. Now, did we get the title right? Sing, singing in the rain. That's it. Yeah, singing. I'm singing in the rain. Right. That's how it goes. Is that a Simpson parody as well? <laughs> so, arguably the most beloved and famous movie musical of all. No time. contest. Yeah. I think that when you say Hollywood musical, what you're thinking of is singing in the rain. Mm-hmm. You know, you may be thinking of Wizard of Oz. You may be thinking of Meet Me in St. Louis. You may be thinking of Step Up 3D. Mm. Ah, great movie. Yeah. The best of the Step Up series. But no, Singing in the Rain is the go-to. If you're doing something about classic Hollywood, you'll see that image of Gene Kelly plastered all over the place. So something that struck me about Stanley Donnan this week, because, you know, I've always enjoyed Stanley Donnan's work, mm-hmm. the work of his that I've seen. How do you not like Stanley Donnan? You know, you, I mean, he made pure pleasure. You could be like, I don't like musicals. And then you're like, oh, man, I feel bad for but, you. But come on, like, how do you not like some mm. of these movies? I guess something that occurred to me you know, we watched his Lifetime Achievement speech, mm-hmm. where uh, in addition to singing a few bars of... Um, at the Oscars. Cheek cheek, yes. Not uh, like on his deathbed or yeah. anything like that, and he gives a speech. At the 1998 Oscars. Uh, he he said, you know, what is the secret of being a great director? It's working with all these uh, scriptwriters, you know, all these Oh, wow, you're setting something up here, I think. He named all them off, <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, Stanley Donnan, one of... I think his talents as a director is he's a great host, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of talented people working his movies, but also another talent that he had is that he was a great pastiche artist. He loved Hollywood and he loved, you know, the good old days. And that came up a lot in his movies. But at the same time, he was also one of the people that pushed forward the idea of integrating uh, the musical numbers within the story. Mm -hmm. When he started uh, his career as a director, in interviews, he actually dismissed people like uh, Vincent Minnelli and Meet Me in St. Louis, who he thought was too schmaltzy, or Busby Berkeley's uh, musical numbers, which he thought were just show-stopping, like, uh, story killers. Big, heavy. Yeah. Well, yeah, because in the uh, Busby Berkeley movies, you have 
the comic scenes and mm-hmm. then you have the musical scenes and there's sort of no integration of the two. And it's not to say that like musicals before Donnan were completely separate uh, in the sense that like, you know, something like Ernst Lubitsch did a bunch of musicals. Uh, Ruben Mamoulian mm-hmm. did uh, Love Me Tonight, which very cleverly integrates the musical numbers into the story that you're seeing. But the most popular form of musical was the backstage musical. Yeah. I don't know. I like a lot of them. Those Busby <laughs> Berkeley ones, like 42nd Street. Uh, or... I mean, Hell's a Poppin'. Well, <laughs> technically a, sure. a backstage musical. But those ones where the musical numbers are confined to the stage. Yeah. Uh, unrelated to the story, like mm-hmm. everything essentially kind of stops dead and you see this musical performance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in addition to, you know, not that he was the only one to integrate them, but he certainly uh, further integrated. Yeah, popularized them and but, always put, tried to push it as far as he could uh, the films that he made especially the films that he made with gene kelly were uh, extremely you know for want of a better word cinematic mm-hmm. you know they were exploding with uh, visual possibilities yeah and going back to singing in the rain it also exemplifies what hollywood people love about classic movies that it's about hollywood mm-hmm. <laughs> and that the musical numbers in the film were also tossed off songs that Arthur Freed had written that they had to integrate into the story that they were making. I was reading an obituary by Peter Tungett in Sight and Sound, and he noted that, you know, because Stanley Donnan was a generation younger than people like Vincent Minnelli, mm-hmm. he says, Donnan's films have a touch of self-consciousness, like a photograph of a photograph. They are a generation removed from the genuine article. And then later he says, in this way, Donnan was a precursor to Peter Bogdanovich. Both borrowed the infrastructure of classic movies and provided a much-needed spit and polish. I would never call someone like Vincent Minnelli as a director fleet-footed or like kind of slick. Like the film, well, they're weighty. Yeah, they're lush. Yeah. And and gorgeous. And and they want you to like soak it in Mm -hmm. while uh, the films of Stanley Donnan are more like, I'm just having a bit of fun here. And you know, consider that Singing in the Rain was kind of MGM's and Gene Kelly's big follow-up well, not big. They're tossed off follow-up to An American in Paris, which was a big, weighty Best Picture winner. So An American in Paris was a big prestige production, whereas Singing in the Rain, uh, a, a rather goofy, uh, slightly tossed-off film that made use of a lot of songs that were in the Arthur Freed catalog. Mm-hmm. Arthur Freed being the producer of all the MGM musicals. And a very bad man. Um... And a very bad man. <laughs> uh, so, you know, all of these songs appeared in earlier MGM musicals, uh, except for one, Make Em Laugh, which, as we all know, is just a plagiarized Be a Clown. <laughs> Oh, is it? <laughs> yeah, if you listen to Be a Clown, it's like the same song. Be a clown, be, be a clown. clown. Yeah, and they have the same thesis as well. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, Make Him Laugh is not really about the song. It's about the the singer. And something like Singing in the Rain and most of Stanley uh, Donnan's early career and his most loved films are inescapably linked with Gene Kelly, mm-hmm. everyone's favorite left-wing dancer. Unlike someone like Fred Astaire, Gene Kelly wasn't about the elegance and the perfection of the moves. He doesn't make it look easy. Like, you can feel that he's working through this. Sure. And that's what was attractive mm-hmm. to uh, people like Donnan and bringing a different side to the usual musicals that you would see. Yeah, so Donnan, who started as a Broadway choreographer, eventually made his way into Hollywood in the mid-40s. Thanks to Gene Kelly. Thanks to Gene Kelly choreographing dance numbers with him. So, you know, famously, that 
dance number in Anchors Away when Gene Kelly dances with Tom and Jerry. Mm -hmm. That was Stanley Donnan's idea. And Stanley Donnan said he uh, worked months just getting it perfect so Jerry would move exactly in time with Gene Kelly. And that, you know, seemed blew people away when it it started. And he, you know, he did choreography for other movies. I think Cover Girl with Rita Hayworth and Gene Kelly was Mm -hmm. another one. Uh, One involving baseball, like let's all go out to the ball game or something like that. Sure, there are some, some less classic ones in there, I'm sure. But the first film on which he has a director credit co-directing with Gene Kelly is On the Town. And I learned this week that one of its chief innovations was that it sort of uh, freed the musical from the studio and kind of brought it out into the streets of New York. What's funny about that is they only had a few days to shoot in New York, so it's only at the beginning and the end, but there's the illusion that it takes place outside in New York. Uh, On the Town stars Gene Kelly, Frank Sinatra, and another guy. <laughs> yeah, uh, Hang on, I, I, think I've, I think I've got his name Oh here. man, his fan, fans are tearing our doors down at the moment. Uh, Jules Munchen uh, just burned Turns out the screen next to those other two icons. As the uh, prehistoric looking man, as one musical number is about. You know, they're on leave for one day in New York. And, uh, you know, as, as the poet once said, New York, New York, it's a wonderful town. The Bronx is up and the battery's down. <laughs> um, and they want to see all the sights. Frank Sinatra wants to go visit all of the tourist spots, like the Statue of Liberty. It's funny to cast Frank Sinatra against type. as the other two guys are the horn dogs. And Frank Sinatra's like, I just want to go see, like, the Museum of Natural history. There's a good scene when Frank is in a taxi with this uh, female taxi driver who really wants to fuck him. Yeah. Uh, wants, keeps wanting to take him up, but no, Frank... Um, he just wants to see the sight, see the gentleman. Frank, Frank doesn't have time for broads. <laughs> <laughs> so this is just like a flighty kind of uh, no-stakes yeah. <laughs> musical. I think it um, climaxes a little early with a ballet number involving um, Miss Turnstile, which has that kind of uh, expressionist look that they would revisit again in films like Singing in the Rain, where it's like people doing ballet in front of like just bold colors. Yeah, and you know, An American in Paris also has that famous scene where uh, Gene Kelly loved this big, wordless, extravagant dance scene. Happens in Singing in the Rain as well. It does. And it sort of summarizes the plot, except in Singing in the Rain, it doesn't. I think that there's a tension which works in the movie's favor because Stanley Donnan said things like, I didn't like those ballet numbers. Because, like, Gene Kelly, that's what he loved was ballet. And Stanley Donnan were, was like, those are just like momentum killing numbers mm-hmm. that you just stop and you watch, which was against his thesis that he wanted to make musicals that. Numbers could happen, but it would still keep the plot going. I will tell you that in Singing in the Rain, the ballet is probably my least favorite part. Uh, There's one moment of the ballet where there's some beautiful things that are happening with a scarf that Uh, it just blows you away. But you're right. You just want to see these characters kind of dancing and having fun. I mean, it's spectacular on its own Mm -hmm. when you watch it. But yeah, like the rest of the movie is so kind of like light and fun and has so, so many fun people in it. Why do you think Singing in the Rain still holds up to this day and people keep going back to it? God, it's such a almost inexplicable alchemy that the mm-hmm. film has because I, I think, you know, you watch On the Town, which is a, a good movie, uh, very fun. Still feels a little stodgy if you a watch it stodgy, now. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the dance scenes are great. And <sighs> They're as... not as dancey as I would like them to be. Okay. Give me Gene Kelly cutting a rug and just covered in sweat. Okay, well, it's got big stars in it. It's got it's got a general, <laughs> yeah. general nice Ah, feel. Frank Sinatra, my favorite. <laughs> but my point is, you know, what separates that and an American in Paris from Singing in the Rain? I don't know. It's just like all the ingredients coming together in, mm-hmm. in a cake. I mean, you know, one of the things is it does play to Stanley Donnan's talents as a master of pastiche. Mm-hmm. It's a film from Hollywood in the 50s, looking back on Hollywood in the late 20s. Yeah. So it has some of that, like, 
me- uh, jokey meta comedy in it. You know, it takes place during the transition from silent film to talking film. Mm-hmm. Um, There's a bunch of shtick like, where do we put the microphone? And yeah. oh my God, her voice is John Gilbert like in its um, <laughs> high pitchedness. That's one for all the John Gilbert heads out there. I mean, it's got all this stuff that is like so cliche. Mm-hmm. All, all Everything about the story, everything about the time period that it's that it's depicting is so corny and cliche. Ah, but when they all start dancing in sync. But it's like it knows it's corny and cliche, yeah. right? And it just leans into it so hard. It has all of the all of the tropes of silent cinema in it. Mm-hmm. It's got a great cast. Yes. Okay. It's got Donald O'Connor as okay, so so the the plot. <laughs> you're in your purest Quentin Tarantino mode. You're like, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> The plot, of course, involves Gene Kelly and Gene Hagen as a, a duo of silent film stars, Lockwood and Lamont. Uh, the problem is that Lena Lamont has a horrible sounding voice, and also they hate each other. Oh, they hate each other so much. But there is also a young showgirl named Kathy Selwyn, played by Debbie Reynolds. Mm-hmm. So there's a bit of a love triangle going on there. But there's also a, a, a funny man, a guy who's followed Gene Kelly around all his life. Ah, uh, Donald O'Connor as Cosmo Brown. Who his job is that he plays the, the first piano. Cosmo after the father of Cosmo Kramer. <laughs> and like Cosmo Kramer, he moves uh, uh, amusingly <laughs> yeah. and he falls through doors and stuff yeah. like that. Uh, nowhere more than in his iconic musical number, Make Him Laugh. Yeah, where he goes crashing through a wall. And, you know, I once saw a community theater production of singing in the rain really you do not want to see make them laugh performed by somebody in a community theater. <laughs> why not like did they hurt themselves or was it just like it, it's just like it's not funny if it's not donald o'connor <laughs> running up a wall or so they did not make you laugh <laughs> no. no i would love to be in a theater and it's just dead silence and the guy's like make them laugh <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, so this movie has a couple of moments in it that are as good as movies get. Pure joy. I mean, low-key, one of my favorite moments in the movies early on is that fit, fit as a fiddle and ready to love when they're on stage and they're playing violin. Uh, so good. That, so good. Oh, that a kind of like winky uh, history of Gene Kelly's character where he <laughs> says like, oh, I studied at the greatest education centers of art. And you see that he's like doing vaudeville and stuff like that, trying to impress yeah. people. Yeah. Even, you know, just minor scenes like Moses Supposes. us. <laughs> Uh, yeah. I don't know. It's I mean, like, it's funny that the songs are catchy and we remember them because the film has been canonized, but the songs were disposable and forgotten when the movie was made. Yeah, and so much of it just spends that you had to have these people singing them at this moment with this spirit. And Stanley Donnan is doing his thing at the best of his abilities where the camera is always moving in tandem with the uh, musical numbers. In interviews that I read... Donnan said that he would actually not even choreograph the musical numbers. That was Gene Kelly's forte Mm -hmm. and that he would be in charge of how the camera moves Mm -hmm. and they would figure a way to make both of them work in sync. And that's why their numbers are so magical. And by all accounts, when they separated, it was Donnan whose movies continued to look good. You know, getting back to why does Singing in the Rain work? It works because it feels like a party. Mm. It feels like everybody's like having fun. Like the plot is not taken seriously at all. It's taken just seriously enough to get you from one song to the next and everybody knows the plot's ridiculous everyone knows all the dialogue's ridiculous you know you're invited to laugh at it but if if you laugh at it you're missing the point it's all just fun or but what about that singing in the rain number the well, uh, the best expression of pure joy ever on film perhaps because the movie's kind of got you to this point where mm. you know you've been laughing having a good time and that's like 
okay, but now now feel something. Yeah. Now feel pure joy. Do, 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 do. And they actually changed the lyrics a little bit of the original song and added and dancing into yeah. the song because that wasn't in the Arthur Freed version. Uh, oh, and uh, Good Morning. Yes. I mean, you The want... song forever associated with Viagra commercials. <laughs> it's a tragic. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I mean, you watch it and you're exhausted. It's mm-hmm. such a dense... And, and complicated feat of choreography. I, you know, it's tough talking about Singing in the Rain because what do you really say about it? Ah, what a great movie. I mean, so much of it Check is... Check it out! So much of it is just in the watching of it. And, it, you know, it's a feast for the eyes and mm. uh, Gene Hagen is hilarious. Everybody's hilarious. Like, they're mm. all, like you said, working in such perfect sync, mm-hmm. which is why it's fun to talk about Stanley Donnan's other films because he continually kept working, mm. but I don't think he ever got as close to the perfection of Singing in the Rain. It's a perfection that just can't be calculated Mm -hmm. Um, lightning in a bottle situation like a hard day's night or something like that like a a spirit that can't be recaptured Um, I mean his list of musicals has a lot of uh, classics and semi-classics in it ah yes like the classic women as sex slaves film uh, seven brides for seven brothers okay I haven't seen it great musical numbers there is royal wedding of course where Fred Astaire danced uh, on the ceiling ah as you may have last seen in Breaking 2 Electric Boogaloo (laughs) and Stanley Donnan said that it was like so surreal for him because he was working with uh, an actor that he had seen as a child and had gotten him into musicals in the first place because it should be said that Donnan was always a movie fan first and musicals and choreographing numbers was a way to get into the industry Mm -hmm. as opposed to Gene Kelly who was a dancer first and then went to movies because it gave him an opportunity to work on a large scale. And you know that's another reason why Singing in the Rain is so great. It's a perfect melding of sensibilities. The Mm -hmm. mise-en-scene is impeccable. The dancing is impeccable. And the dramatic weight that it has to lift is not very heavy. Like the romantic subplot in the film, once the two leads get together there's no conflict except for one brief moment in the last five minutes and that's it but the chemistry works yeah you like these people people and you like hanging out with them you never feel that it's playing only on one note so the hollywood musical declined in popularity stanley donnan continued working moved elsewhere moved to britain in fact where he made several films that have achieved something like classic status charade of course the uh public domain hitchcock riff that's right the uh, a bootleg uh hitchcock Uh, stanley donnan in an interview said I really like Hitchcock's movies, and I wanted to make a Hitchcock film myself. And he did. You know, if it were a real Hitchcock movie, I would put it perhaps somewhere in the middle of the filmography. It's not as visually inventive as even Stanley Donnan's, like, uh, most energetic films. It really coasts on the charisma of its stars and all the fun B-movie actors. George Kennedy was a claw. James Coburn in there as well. But, you know, you're right. It does coast a bit, Mm -hmm. and you kind of have to be on board with these two stars. Ah, Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant trying to uh, share an orange under their chins. Like, that is the definition of like, ah, oh, I just like these people and I like to see them do silly things. They were getting on a little bit in age at this point. Yeah. So there is a novelty to see them doing this stuff. Cary Grant looks a little bit like the Madame Tussauds version <laughs> oh. of himself. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know I tuned into the roast of Cary Grant. <laughs> <laughs> He's great, though. Look, everyone yeah. likes him. But it doesn't have the kind of propulsion of a Hitchcock movie. No, know? it doesn't. It's just kind of like light and fluffy. And mm-hmm. as Audrey Hepburn says herself, you know, the person who's probably doing it is a person you least suspect Mm -hmm. like it's aware of what it's doing the same kind of thesis that would go through all of Donnan's filmography one of his more beloved later films is Bedazzled starring Peter Cook and Dudley Moore not to be confused
confused with the remake starring Elizabeth Hurley and Brendan Fraser. Directed by Harold Ramis. That's right. But no, this is the original one, which is more highly regarded, I would say. Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, of course, were the comedy duo of Beyond the Fringe, who, you know, were the progenitor, along with the goon show of Monty Python, uh, before Dudley Moore became Arthur. <laughs> became Arthur and Santa Claus the movie. And, yeah, that's you know, right. A, a cynical, check-cashing uh, <laughs> Hollywood uh, actor. I always think of Dudley Moore and Peter Cook as a comedy duo that was were never able to recreate the magic that everybody talked about on screen. Because, like, Bedazzled is the one that people go to is like, ah, this is their best. Uh-huh. And it's like, ah, yeah, it's amusing. I, li- I like it. You know, I don't love it or anything. Ah, what boomer humor it is. <laughs> there is a lot of boomer humor, but, like, I like Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. Yeah. And I like them in it, and I like them them riffing together. Peter Cook plays the devil who tempts Dudley Moore. Dudley Moore plays an incel uh, guy, <laughs> yeah. uh, guy who works at a greasy spoon restaurant. Who, after he can't have a conversation with the waitress at the restaurant, he tries to kill himself. He loves her so much, and uh, he Ugh, he would sell his shit. he would sell his soul to get a date with this woman. And uh, what a great deal the devil, played by Peter Cook, gives him seven wishes. Seven wishes, not just one. Seven. And of course, if you've seen the Elizabeth Hurley remake, you know that who hasn't number he, one at the box office. He uh, wishes for several scenarios in which he will fall in love and marry and be with this woman. And in each one, the devil fucks him up just a little bit. Yeah, classic stuff like he wishes he was rich and that she was very physical. So she's cheating on him with uh, somebody, her psychiatrist. I mean, if I have a problem with the movie, uh, it's that, like, with each segment, you kind of get the joke instantly. And, and you're like, oh, my God, I have to watch all of it. The best parts are when it's, like, little off-the-cuff jokes. Like, Peter uh, Cook, as the devil, is, like, at his lair, is scratching records. Or um, yeah. what else is he doing? Just, like, very annoying little things. Oh, he, he goes around and, like, like, there's a group of hippies in a park and he just throws some bees at them. <laughs> yeah. Or he points at someone with a shopping bag and like the shopping bag rips. Yeah. And what's great about that joke is that Dudley Moore's like, <laughs> oh no, that's terrible. You shouldn't do that. That's the thing. I like, really like all the scenes in this movie that are between the big mm-hmm. comic scenes, the scenes where it's him and Dudley Moore negotiating what the next wish is going to be. And I like the sort of vision of what the devil and God are. Yeah, like, very petty and small. Yeah. The devil lives in this mansion where he has the seven deadly sins around mm-hmm. him. So Raquel Welch is in it as lust. Mm-hmm. And there's envy there's uh, greed you know and they all have a little a funny little comic bit with you know that dry english humor at one point where he wishes he was a pop star and it goes into like a hard day's night style black and I white that movie. Scene. I wish every wish was like that. Yeah. And they get close to it. Like at one point he's like an animated fly, mm-hmm. but the film is too trapped in the kind of like, ah, this is how a comedy film should play out. That it never gets into that kind of like eclectic, crazy style changes yeah. that the movie really needed to work. Yeah, that pop that pop star scene is so great because it's it's experimental it's and it's short. <laughs> yeah. In and out. They should have given him 14 wishes and then you could have like a bunch of little skits yeah but still uh thumbs up you know we're worth checking out Mm -hmm. Eh, it's fine i giggled a few times and smiled but no like big guffaws well here's another movie that he made that i liked more than justin although probably not a lot more it's movie movie from 1976 Mm -hmm. which was the original grindhouse where stanley donnan was throwing back to the films of the 40s and putting together a double bill of a boxing picture and uh busby burke 
Bradley backstage musical. 45 minutes each with an introduction by George Burns <laughs> and separated by a trailer in the middle. So it really is the original Grindhouse. Did the version you watch have the first part in black and white? Yes. Because they released it on DVD and they were both in color. Oh, no. Yeah. You almost feel, though, that first part should also be in 4 by 3 and it's not. Yeah. That may be, uh, be pushing it too far. Well, yeah, the first one is, is, I mean, it should be in black and white and it is in the version I saw and it's sort of a film noir and, and you know, it's like the classic boxing story of he's fighting his way to the top for a good cause but he gets corrupted along the way and does he throw the fight or does he not? Yeah, all the cliche and it ends absurdly, you know, with him becoming a lawyer so so that he could convict the, the, the bad guy. I feel like this segment is amusing and it kind of exemplifies most of Stanley Donnan's later career where films like Charade were so popular that he started to make these kind of like amusing comedies like they're not laugh out loud funny they're not going really crazy they're just kind of there like movie movie you would almost assume that it would be like a crazy spoof but Donnan actually said like no 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 we just want to push the absurdity Mm -hmm. without you knowing it's a joke like if you kind of stumbled upon it on tv you wouldn't know that it was like a larf well really he's going for a tone kind of like singing in the rain yeah but he doesn't quite have it the rain is a movie where you're not quite sure are they serious here there's like any of the really funny jokes and especially that first part are when it does push it far enough like there's a a moment where he has to throw the fight and then there's like a parade of people in his life who are like we bet everything we have on you because we believe even you. Yeah, and you know, the backstage musical basically just plays like a Busby Berkeley backstage yeah, it's musical, all right. but with tongue slightly in cheek. And where the fun of the movie comes from is that like actors change roles, the same locations appear in both movies, mm-hmm. dress slightly differently. I mean, I I genuinely kind of, like not a lot, but I yeah. kind of liked Movie Movie just because the spirit of it is mm. very upbeat and the cast is very charming. Barry, <laughs> Barry Bostwick, I think is terrific. Yeah, <laughs> drunken George C. Scott um, careening through both uh, parts of the movie. Uh, Eli Wallach and Art Carney are also in it in smaller roles. Yeah, it's amusing. <laughs> and and like they're both taken on their own if you were to just approach them as examples of their genre. They're kind of like okay examples of their genre. I think that like there's actually a trailer in the between both of them mm-hmm. and that's just like a very small example of why the film didn't light on fire for me where like the idea of Red Buttons being a fighter pilot is the <laughs> joke. <laughs> like that's why it's funny. Had this movie come out a couple years later it would have been like a Zucker Brothers yeah. type spoof because after Airplane like the financiers would have said let's get some more jokes in here if you look at something like Blazing Saddles mm-hmm. that almost feels like what movie movie should have been or, or, whereas movie movie is more like what's up doc or yes like yeah that. like oh we like these genres and we're just kind of like poking them in the rib but we also want to do them yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. I mean uh, Donnan said that as he uh, went, grew older he actually started to appreciate Manelli's films and mm-hmm. Berkeley because he didn't see that he was in direct competition with them he wasn't the young buck trying to do something different and that's something I also find charming about movie movie. It's mm. like him doing a Busby Berkeley movie. Yeah, he's like saying, ah, you know, there was value in this as well. I also find it charming that like backstage musicals and boxing dramas are both mostly forgotten genres now. Yeah, <laughs> I want you to write a wrestling picture. <laughs> yeah, a Wallace Berry wrestling picture. <laughs> I mean, boxing films were so big if you just look back at that time. Yeah. So Donnan just kind of slowed down his career as he went along. As we said, uh, Blame It on Rio was the last picture that he made. A lot of different kinds of movies towards the end though there was what was it Saturn 3 oh like, yeah that's right sci-fi that movie. one has an insane Kirk Douglas who's acting like he's 20 years old shirtless jumping down and fighting a robot being like Arr! 
it feels like Donnan trying to, hello, fellow kids, <laughs> like prove that he could do this stuff. You can definitely see a bit of a sense of him, you know, with like Bedazzled mm. uh, or with charade where he's like i don't mean this as a knock on him he's a very good like handler of other people's talents <laughs> yes he, he, you know one movie we didn't watch and i think it's probably his best film actually there's two of them it's two for the road which stars albert finney and aubrey hepburn mm. which is definitely uh donnan's a french new wave inspired film mm. where it um shows a trip that albert finney and Audrey Hepburn are taking uh, through the countryside by car and it's actually four trips that are intercut with each other so it tells a story over 12 years of relationship with the illusion that it's all happening consecutively mm. and that's a kind of experimentation that he rarely pushed that far and there's also um, It's Always Fair Weather which I think is one of his best uh, musicals along with Singing in the Rain which is the kind of like downer oh my god we're adults and Life Sucks uh, <laughs> stories, which is about um, a bunch of guys that were uh, friends during World War II and come back together like decades later to meet again and realize that they've completely changed and their lives are different and they haven't really achieved the things that they wanted to do. But there's also crazy musical numbers where they're dancing with trash can lids. <laughs> so if you want to check out his films beyond the classics that we mentioned, those two are the ones that I would definitely recommend going to see. Justin, do we have any letters this week? We do have some letters. As per usual, you can send us letters at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com and our first one is from Jay Calderon and he goes hey guys first time long time I've been meaning to write for a while and I've wanted to have a good reason to do so and now I do related to your asylum episode I had just worked a couple of days as a production assistant on an asylum picture and wanted to share my experience with you oh man this sounds exciting it's a bit of a long letter so we may interrupt it here and there as we go through my buddy was brought in as a production designer for what is a World War II movie. I was brought in as a PA last minute on the last three days in what was an eight-day shoot. Mm, just like an Edgar G. Elmer An eight-day World War II picture. <laughs> yeah. Love it. On average, 20 pages were shot in a day. Holy shit. <laughs> Wait, eight days? What is this movie, like three hours long? <laughs> and it was a very run and gun. I usually work in commercials where there are perks like craft service and mobile offices. But this set was run very much like a student film. Usually you rent out a production truck from a production rental company not this set with the exception of the actor trailers i assume it was probably someone like michael madsen or something like yeah. that in his island pictures the trucks for art and production were literally moving trucks from budget rent a car and most of the crafty was just a bag of granola bars and bottled water at one point i opened a rotten serving of dairy creamer i don't mind so much since i see craft services as a bit of an extravagance but seeing this was a shock to the system the production crew was working out of the costume trailer as the upm was working double duty as costume designer so space was very limited they are very much proud of the fact that they're Productions are so cheap. We talked about this a little bit on the episode that like looking at the movies, the value they must get doing these productions is that like, wow, we actually completed it and we yeah. got someone to buy it. In a sense, cutting corners for the sake of cutting corners when you could have spent a little more to improve morale. Mm, I don't like that on film sets. If morale is shitty on films, that is not good. But everyone knew what they signed up for. Usually the people that come on the productions have worked with them before and take on the task in between other work. One of the PAs I worked with actually does camera for them and is brought in last minute to do PA work because a paycheck is a paycheck. Ah, these poor people in Hollywood. The logistical aspect of shooting a World War II movie in a short period of time was admirable in a certain sense. 
I guess. We shot some of it on a preserved farmland in South Los Angeles that was adjacent to a Target. I like how the letter writer here writes, like Walmart. <laughs> we had Targets in Canada. We did briefly have Targets, but actually Target went out of business in Canada. Mm-hmm. After only like two years or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. They totally failed. Uh, and the letter continues. So imagine seeing a guy in a Nazi uniform having a smoke break outside a Target parking lot and you get a sense of the run and gun nature on set. We went around this property trying to redress dilapidated old farm sheds as period sets, much of the time utilizing handy burlap to hide any anachronisms. Ah, who cares? In an asylum film. <laughs> Certainly nobody watching it. <laughs> this was further complicated by a torrent of rain that had been pouring into LA recently, and the crew consisted of one grip, gaffer, two camera operators, two assistants, and a handful of art and FX people to huddle and pull their weight in getting the minimal amount of equipment possible to create a believable period piece. The assistant director was drenched in water, and the set did feel at times like a war zone. Of course, there will be glaring anachronisms, notwithstanding the architecture of the locations that will take more than a few hanging Nazi symbols to pull off a Nazi stronghold, but it was cool to see how much was done to dress the set in such a short period of time. This is a question of, like, the people on set, they're just happy to like get a movie right or to get a paycheck that's how you define happy yeah yeah <laughs> uh, they're happy that their day ends and that they have something in the can i like to think that there are some people there who are you know just full of that francois Truffaut day for night spirit you know? i don't think so <laughs> da, 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 da. Yeah. <laughs> at the end of the location shoot i was brought on to return some production supplies back to asylum hq so i got to see where the magic all starts the building is in an industrial area of glendale a suburb of los angeles and there's a pretty nice office space i walked through the computer render floor where all the effects for the various films were made shelves lined with books like maya for dummies and whiteboards with delivery schedules along the hall were posters of asylum classics like Transmorphers and Z Nation. Books like Notes on the Cinematograph by Robert Brasson. <laughs> I was going to say Save the Cat, but they mostly probably have Reflections of Time by yeah, sculpt- uh, Tarkovsky yeah. sculpting with time, yeah. The actual production office was a small room with an outline of the film written out in a whiteboard. I like to imagine like, the only script they had, <laughs> a, a, like an a iPhone photo of an outline on a board. We later finished shooting in an old merchant marine vessel in San Pedro, the port of Los Angeles. We had free reign to run around the ship to recreate a battle ship and it was amazing where you can get away with with some strategically placed lights and fog machines. Ah, Edgar G. Elmer lives. <laughs> but of course, running around the ship meant carrying all the equipment around the ship, which was a hassle. What was interesting was how many creative aspects regarding blocking were done to hide the modern world, and much of the film's mise-en-scene was informed by maintaining some sense of verisimilitude. For example, filming an air attack, the camera needed to film towards the sky as to hide the cargo and cruise ships from entering the frame, and it was evident that stuff like explosions and gunfires were to be added in post. The director was off-screen yelling at the actors and mock-firing a period anti-aircraft gun giving his cues this is something i find fascinating about making low budget films is that like in a film filled with fake effects and cgi explosions the idea of like oh we need to block it so you can't tell it's modern day is really funny (laughs) and i guess you need to give yourself a goal to achieve yeah right because otherwise just you know you're fucking william bodine just put the camera down and uh, ah, it's good i do think that if you're making a world war ii movie unless it is set in the present you should try to <laughs> you should try to hide cell, cell the, phones and stuff what about like all that. the cgi stuff floating around and like the shitty explosions well they had explosions in the 1940s the cgi explosions? they had a, they had a big explosion you'll recall <laughs> when did we accept cgi as okay in movies <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, we shouldn't have. No, we shouldn't have. But one day we did, and we're like, that demon in Spawn looks better than a puppet. Justin and I were watching some clips from Spawn before <laughs> we recorded. <laughs> uh, because my co-host on the No Such Thing as a Bad Movie podcast, Colin Cunningham, wrote, worked on the VFX, and he told us that they built a puppet for the end demon. And at the last minute, they said, no, no, you know what? Let's switch it to CGI. And it looks like the CGI you would do in school <laughs> when you first discovered the program. My favorite Roger Ebert review of all time begins with Spawn is best approached as an avant-garde art film. Anyway, we should return to this letter. <laughs> well, the letter just kind of wraps up with, it was a tough shoot, but not the toughest, like music videos. And it made me appreciate the cushy pampering that is a capitalist hellscape of the commercial production world. Thanks for your work. All the best, JJ. I think the question that I still have about the asylum is, is anyone there happy and excited? No, I don't think so. I think that the producers maybe are, that they can like pull the wool over the eyes of the uh, distributors A couple of like David F. Friedman's over there. Yeah, like David F. Friedman. We love David F. Freeman, right? Yeah. And like what we love about him was that how he could sell the sizzle and have no stake to deliver. This is Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> yeah. So why do we love David F. Friedman? But we're like, when we did the Asylum episode, you're like, ugh, all these movies are shit. What's the point? Um, it's because David F. Friedman is anachronistic now. He's, yeah. He's old and he's a historical artifact. And there's some... Well, he's dead, actually, yeah. but his, fil- his films are old. <laughs> yeah, he's old in the grave where he's a skeleton. Yeah. And there's something, I think nostalgic about how hard movies were to make back then like they actually cost money and they were shot on film stock that while it looked shitty was still comparable to uh you know major motion pictures while now the like digital sheen and all those easy cg effects are such a distance from what we consider uh Mm. theatrical movies and i'm sorry blood feast is more fun than transmorphers oh 100% 100% more yeah. fun than Transmorphers. Yeah. I guess maybe the um, definition of what is acceptable has just lowered to the <laughs> point that, like, uh, it just makes us sad. And as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And on our Patreon this week, we're going to the underground and we're talking about Sarah Jacobson's Mary Jane's Not a Virgin Anymore, the Clerks of the 90s that was directed by a woman, and you've probably never heard about it before, but you should. Because she was an important voice that never got the distribution that she deserved. She died very young without making another film. And it's only now that the American Genre Film Archives remastered her feature film and are releasing it that you can discover it and realize, wow, this stuff was being made. But because the industry was all controlled by men, uh, we didn't get to see it. So that's $5 a month. You can become a Patreon subscriber by going to patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. Next week, we're discussing the movement that revolutionized cinema and that has created so many enduring classics. <laughs> what <are> we, what? <laughs> uh, a movement that I struggled to find any of them on DVD. Like, I just, like, I went to all the video stores in town, couldn't do it. I would have thought that, like, libraries would have been overflowing with copies I mean, of them. they were once ubiquitous on every streaming platform. And now they're just gone. I just wanted to listen to commentaries of, in the moment, these mumblecore filmmakers mumblecore <laughs> ah, a term that was coined by the director of funny haha and people like joe swanberg tried to throw away because that's not really who we are that's like how people don't like being called a hipster anymore yeah mumblecore being the movement where um a bunch of 20 somethings shot trust fund kids you yeah know? <laughs> shot videos in their apartments with no lights digital cameras and movies about you know 
fucking. Yeah, and just the banality of life, man. Yeah. <laughs> John Cassavetes, if you will. A lot of nudity, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, just, Greta Gerwig came out of the scene. That's and true. And she is enduring. Swanberg has never stopped. He's he's probably making another movie as we speak right and now. And he just gets to hang out with his Hollywood friends and, like, make films and release he, them. He made that Netflix show, Loving, I think it was called. Oh, he worked on Loving. Yeah. I don't think he was the main, like, he directed a lot of episodes. Okay. Good show, good show. Okay. His movies, hmm. Not a big fan of it. Were you big in the Mumblecore scene when it came out? Give it a little taste. I was I was interested in Mumblecore. At the you were like, finally, what Francis Ford Coppola said, the democratization of filmmaking is in the hands of the people. And by that, we mean, you know, wealthy white people who live in the big city. Uh, yeah, the first part of what you said was definitely something that was kind of swirling through my mind in the mid-2000s. So we're going to take like a helping of like the major film. So we're going to watch uh, Funny Haha. Hannah Takes the Stairs, and a later day uh, Mumblecore film, Hump Day. Uh, so that's, and we're probably going to move outwards from there. Mm-hmm. I remember a time where, like, people would talk about Mumblecore all, there were Mumblecore film festivals in Toronto, and it's just kind of gone away, and, and people don't talk about those movies anymore. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a fascinating topic, and uh, I look forward to talking about it next week. Until then, my name is Justin Blue. I'm Will Slam. Thanks for listening. So this weekend, Peter Kaplowski put on his What the Film Festival. I help programming with it because it's under the umbrella of the Laser Blast Film Society. But most of the films were submitted to Peter as a programmer for stuff like TIFF and Fantastic Fest. Watched the movies, loved them, and went, I have no festival to put these in. Either they're incredibly long, like uh, Patrick Wang's amazing two-part film, A Bread Factory, or they're super weird, like Damon Packard's Fatal Pulse, a.k.a. Uh, is it Night Pulse, a.k.a. Untitled Yuppie Thriller? Well, first of all, if Peter had balls, he would have put Fatal Pulse as the opening night film of Midnight <laughs> oh my Madness. God. That's what I said. It would have been more than six walkouts. Fine. You know what? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, A Bread Factory is a great movie, and everybody should keep their eye out on that, but we're here to talk about Fatal Pulse. Me and Will watched this movie together. We experienced it in this 400-seat theater. Damon Packard is kind of an interesting um, outsider filmmaker. The, the thing that he's done that I'm most familiar with is Untitled Star Wars Mockumentary. Oh, it's on YouTube and it's so funny. It's so funny, where he basically took all the behind-the-scenes footage from Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones and added a lot of other footage and shot some footage and made this kind of bizarre making of documentary. It's kind of like his histoire du cinema. Well, that's <laughs> what Damien Packard did with all his movies. Like, even way back when he made his first feature film, Reflections of Evil, it's taking all this detritus. Man, I learned the word detritus recently and I've been using it's it all the useful, time. Yeah. And he makes these art collage movies that have the faint width of a plot but they're like really experimental underground films that are just dealing with a lot of stuff that you know. Well, this new one, Fatal Pulse, has a lot of plot, um, but, but <laughs> does, it? Does, it, does it matter? No. It's kind of like Inland Empire meets Tim and Eric. Yeah. It's about a guy that inspired the yuppie thrillers who is a James Spader type, even though he looks nothing like James Spader. Well, it's set in 1991 in yeah, Los Angeles. Important. And it, op- it opens, I had me with the opening scene where it's like, 
footage of Andy Rooney on 60 Minutes talked, <laughs> yeah. and, and it's but he dubbed over, over. yeah, uh, <laughs> talking about yuppie thrillers like Sleeping with the Enemy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sleeping with the Enemy becomes an important plot point because you say plot point like it matters. It does matter that Julia Roberts is a character in this film. Yes. Um, also, a character in the film is William Friedkin, mm-hmm. uh, Dick Cheney. Yep, uh, the host of Up All Night, the yeah. classic. Um, was that? It was an American TV station, so I didn't watch it, but I know TNT. Of it. TNT. Yeah. That's uh, right. There are some other politicians. Uh, Mitt Romney is referred to. There's a lot of uh, executives that were running studios at that time mm-hmm. that I don't know, but Damon Packard like absorbed all this history that he can just kind of regurgitate it in a way that like, ah, you get it right? Remember this executive? Yeah, and it's set in 1991. The phrase that I use all the time Mm. is the end of history. Yes. Uh, But that does kind of come into play because something that keeps being repeated in the movie is the idea that, okay, well, nothing's ever going to change from now on. Yeah, we're freezing time with our satanic ritual. Except we will have cell phones in the future. (laughs) Yes. Isn't there, or in the internet. They're like cell phones in the internet. But other than that, every single remain the same as 1991. Fanny packs are going to be big. (laughs) And like this is being presented as this conspiracy of the uh, government and cultural elites. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm making it sound more coherent than it is. So the first 20 minutes of this film, I feel like most of the audience was on board. Like, it was weird, but they kind of could get into it because it's stuff they've seen on the internet. But then it just goes so off the rails, and it's two hours long, and it has to be that long, because it's just like beating the audience into submission. I mean, at least two people in the group I was sitting with walked out. Um, <laughs> oh, I know who it is. <laughs> uh, I was I was thinking of walking out at times. I actually but... looked over, and you were sitting, and you waved at me, and I was shocked you were still sitting there. Well, yeah, because, I mean, I enjoyed every minute of this movie. Oh, so but good. But watching all the minutes together... But it, yeah, to watch it like that. But yeah, he shoots it all in like wide angle lenses. It's almost always night and it's always purple night and like pink. It looks amazing. Yeah. It will spend five minutes to just make fun of the fact that Rush uh, rapped <laughs> in their songs and they have a full lookalike Rush band and they play. Did, did Rush actually rap? Yeah, on the song Roll the Bones, okay. which is the song they sing in the movie. This is also a film that, copyright wise, could never be properly released. Oh, yeah. Because it's filled with songs and one character it just sits on the couch and watches 1-900 commercials and trailers and like you see the McDonald's moon ad like 30 times in the movie. I mean, my favorite part of the movie is the William Friedkin Ugh. subplot. There's, uh, is it Damon Packer himself? Playing? No, it's another guy playing uh, William Friedkin. Uh, the best William Friedkin impression I think I will ever hear. You close your eyes and you hear his voice and it just sounds like William Friedkin. Yeah. And the whole concept is William Friedkin selling out <laughs> so the Guardian will be a hit. Yeah. Like, that is such a specific point of reference. And he has that like arrogant William Friedkin personality. Yeah, yeah. he's like, like, multiplexes are destroying cinemas. I can't do a William Friedkin, but... Multiplexes are destroying... He sounds a bit like Donald Trump. Yeah, right? he does. Yeah. And what's amazing about it is that Damon Packard, while it feels like someone hit him on the head and the movie kind of spilled out wildly, he's also a special effects guy, so, like, there'll be billboards in the background that's, like, vanilla ice, icies, perfectly integrated Oh, and, and there's another subplot with the fact that, you know, this was another big panic at the time because there were the L.A. riots. Yeah. And there was also the Hood movie that were so popular so it's like New Jack City is playing and it causes a riot <laughs> and, and like going, New Jack City all the black New people Jack in the city, city are like New Jack City <laughs> New Jack City and we should point out at this uh, point in time the main character has been killed and come back to life as a puppet <laughs> 
<laughs> they're just endless chase scenes with like people popping and locking and CGI explosions all over the place. I don't know what Damon Packard's point of reference is, but he keeps having characters crash into boxes <laughs> and accompanies it with CGI fire exploding everywhere. So I'm glad I didn't walk out, even though I was tempted at times, because I really, I really did like this movie, and I hope that listeners will somehow get a chance to see it. It was on Amazon Prime and it got taken down. Oh shit! It has an amazing cover, which is like clip art of someone with two guns, like jumping to the side, <laughs> which the movie has nothing to do with. And I really want to explore Damon Packard's work more. I think maybe we should do something. Oh something man! More but the later. movie right at the end, as you're just kind of like you're just bloody and you barely <laughs> conscious, pulls out one last hilarious joke where women are talking about how hot Kevin Costner is in Robin Hood. (laughs) And then we see clips from Robin Hood. Ah, that is pure cinema. Why are there explosions? (laughs) Well, they had gunpowder back then. (laughs) Just as Damon Packard's like, I know what I'm doing. 